because everybody wants to be Silicon Valley, but that's like almost impossible. But you can actually become Israel. And I think if you follow up, you know, if you and you don't copy and paste, it doesn't work, unfortunately. But if you kind of follow the journey and, and try to learn and adapt, I actually think, you know, a lot of countries can go through that route. From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. You just heard from Arvi Hassan, who's speaking today with our senior partner, Eric Roth, in our first of two podcasts on Israel's vibrant startup ecosystem. It's part of our committed innovator series of discussions between Eric and other leading innovators. In addition to Arvi, Eric is joined by Hemi Perez. Both Arvi and Hemi are deeply involved in growing and strengthening Israel's startup ecosystem. Arvi is CEO of Startup National Central, a not-for-profit organization that promotes Israel's startup ecosystem. Previously, he was chief scientist of Israel's Ministry of Economy. Hemi is co-founder and managing partner of Israel's largest venture capital firm, Pitango and chair of the Perez Center for Peace and Innovation, which was started by Hemi's father, the former Prime Minister of Israel, Shimon Perez. The center seeks to promote lasting peace and advancement in the Middle East by fostering tolerance, economic and technological development, cooperation, and well-being. In this episode, you'll hear about how Israel grew its startup ecosystem to be the third largest in the world. Eric, Arvi, and Hemi will also discuss the region's prospects for future growth driven by technological advancements and growing economic cooperation. And a quick reminder, you can find other episodes in our innovation series via the link in today's show notes and by searching for Committed Innovator in your favorite podcast player. Now, here's Eric. It is an absolute honor to have two of the originators of the Israeli ecosystem of innovation with us today. And I just want to start off, if we roll back the clock to when you were first thinking about what does innovation and entrepreneurship mean for Israel, how are you thinking about that? When I think about uh, innovation, I think about uh, Israel as the first state that was actually created, built, envisioned, and is striving based on innovation. And the reason is that this is a country that was blessed with nothingness. No water, no food, no land, no shelter, no market. And how do you create a nation when you have nothing? So you have to turn to your brain power and use innovation. And for me, the story of Israel is a story of innovation as it is told at the Paris Center for Peace and Innovation. It starts with Herzl's vision to create a new, old new land, um, utopian society, revive the Hebrew language, and then settle down where everything that you needed, from food to water, uh, to energy, to defense, and to economy, was based on innovation. And our belief is going forward with innovation, Israel will continue to thrive, will achieve peace, and will make a significant contribution to the world. So one of the things that we often talk about in innovation is how constraints are innovation's best friend. Given what you just said, is the constraints that Israel started with were- Constraints were, and necessities. Were, and were, were huge, and necessities. Was that part of the engine that, that created that ingenuity and need for, for innovation? I believe so, but it is also combined with, uh, in my view, with values, 
I think we, as Israelis and as Jewish people, we see ourselves as having a role in the world to repair the world. We call it Tikkun Olam. And we have a mission statement, which is to introduce innovation and new ideas and new technologies, not only for ourselves, but to solve the problems of the world. If you'd ask my father, he would say that the biggest contribution of the Jewish people to the world is dissatisfaction. Since we're never happy with what we have, we have to create new things and to innovate. And Avi, you were the, the chief scientist of the Israeli Innovation Authority. What was, the, what was your role and what was the role of that in, in creating Israel and the innovation model? I think if Chemi touched the part of the values, and we can talk later about the culture, which derives out of those values, another thing that Israel did very well is to acknowledge early on the economic value that innovation can bring. And if you look into the Israeli economy, it basically is a knowledge-based economy. Over half of our export, 54% of our export is high-tech, which means it's strategic. It's our business plan as a country. And I think today, every country, every region, every city is somewhere in that journey transforming its economy from typically a resource-based economy to a knowledge-based one. Israel did that really, really early. One of the key parts of that was to build the office of the chief scientist, acknowledging that public and private sectors need to work together in order to achieve that goal. So knowledge and education were clearly one critical ingredient. What were the other critical ingredients that made up the sort of the, the formula that turned Israel into the innovation center that it is? So again, as Chemi said or alluded, uh, we had excellent uh, universities and research institutions even before the establishment of our modern state. A lot of what those places cared about is to serve the needs of the country. How do we feed the people? How we defend our country and so on. But that was a, an excellent foundation later to have one of the important parts of an ecosystem as such. But to that, you need to add other ingredients. Some of them are unique to Israel. In order to have innovation hubs like Israel has become, you really need to develop not just the discrete components, but also the interconnectivity between them. And in this role, as I said, public and private sectors play a role. But at the end of the day, it's, it's quite simple. I'm, I'm sure you want the recipe, right? To build an innovation ecosystem, you need two things. All you need is human capital and financial capital. That's all you need. Now, the problem is that once you start analyzing what I just said, you realize that in order to scale in that innovation pyramid and build the ecosystem, you need very different types of human capital along the way, from basic scientists to entrepreneurs to product people to marketing people. And you need very type of different type of financial capital. You need government money and you need uh, uh, venture capital, of course. And then you need growth capital and you need public markets. And having all of those together synced in the right way is really something which is maybe easy to explain, but quite hard to imitate. So, so let's unpack some of those. Let's start with the public for a moment. Public funding and public involvement played a very important and special role, whether it be the defense industry or some of the, the interventions that the government made in terms of the commercial sector uh, as, as various uh, businesses evolved. How would, how would you rate the criticality of that and then of, of the public portion of the system, what was, what was really the, the couple things that, that made it uniquely special and uniquely work? So, so I, I think, uh, first of all, I, I would argue that reg regardless of what's your theology uh, regarding government's intervention, free market, and so on, in the world of innovation, the smart or the right public policies are crucial 
in order to have a vibrant and, and an active ecosystem. And I think Israel has done it right. First of all, we started very, very early. The Office of the Chief Scientist was set up 50 years ago. This is really early in the history of ecosystems and knowledge economies and so on. And from the very beginning, we did a couple of things quite smart. And, and I can talk about it later, but if I need to choose one, because I, honestly, I'd love to hear Chemi's perspective, not being the former chief scientist, I would just say it, the most important thing to my mind is that public-private partnership, is, is figuring out from the very early days that government has a role to play, which it can and should play better than the private sector, but it should not try to replace the private sector in the things they do best. And that sort of coordination or balance is really what drove Israel's policies in the past 50 years. So that's, Chemi, it would be great to hear from you representing the, the more the private side, but, but a tremendous perspective on the public side as well as to what, what makes that partnership work here. Yeah, so I believe that uh, the best enterprises in Israel has been private-public partnerships. But I think things are dynamic and they are changing. In the beginning, the government really was behind everything because when we started, we had to take care of two things. One is our sustainability and the other one is survivability. Survivability, which is defense, of course, uh, calls for government funding, even though my father's prime project as a young man, uh, the establishment of the nuclear facility was done with no government funding, as a matter of fact, against the government. The government was not willing to put a cent into this project. And all the funding came from private individual donors who were promised that their, their name will never be acknowledged uh, for the secrecy of, of the project. And also for settling down um, all the investment in our water system and food system and energy system has been done by governments. But now the source of innovation is moving from pure necessities into purpose necessities, yeah. necessities with values, yeah. which have been defined primarily by the United Nations through the 17 development goals, sustainable development goals. And so through the years, there is a shift of power from governments to private individuals, to entrepreneurs, to enterprises, to companies. And in many cases, they are taking the role of a government by initiating and creating new systems so do you see that shift being very prominent in Israel today? Is that there are certain commercial enterprises, whether it be individual, individually led or, or more corporate, that are starting to play that role in infrastructure, in solving problems? What, what would be some good examples? Just to, yeah. Earlier this morning, I spoke about the impact of technology on infrastructure. For example, the water system, when Israel was created, was pumping, pumping water from the Lake of Galilee and streaming it down to the south. With the introduction of water desalination, we could actually create water desalination factories on the coastline and move water from west to east and actually help Israel get into almost water independence in its ability to sustain its economy, uh, not only for drinking water, but for industry and agriculture. So I believe that Free enterprise, entrepreneurship, science, technology, innovation are driving forward uh, humanity and evolutions and uh, taking, in many cases, the role of governments. So, so Avi, you, you mentioned earlier about values. And I think behind some of what Chemi you're describing, uh, 
they're, they're not only just values, but also um, real challenges, whether by necessity or otherwise, that had to be solved. As both of you see more corporates or more commercial enterprises taking the role of government, who do, gets to define what challenges are solved and for whom those challenges, when they're solved, benefit? Because one could imagine a world in which the forces of more capitalistic type funding models may not be as egalitarian or, or otherwise in terms of which challenges get chosen, which entrepreneurs get funded, and what benefits then result from those, those investments. Yeah, first of all, just, just going back to the old days, in Israel, the model was never top-down, never in the past. I'm not talking about the very early days where the, the economy was highly centralized and government was also the executor of the innovation, the operation. But with regards to innovation policies, it was never top-down. It was never, here are the things we want to solve and do that, but rather let a thousand flower blooms, you know, create the right infrastructure and environment, and then try to help you know, mitigate the risk and help those, those enterprises grow. So it was never driven in Israel by a Vision 2030 plan. And by the way, that, that approach has trade-offs. I think it's part of the result, maybe we'll get to that, that while Israel has really created one of the world's leading innovation hubs, uh, the rest of the economy is underwhelming in many, many aspects because the implementation of those technologies in Israel was quite limited in general with, with, a, few, with a few exceptions. So I would think it was always a very bottom-up-ish kind of ecosystem, and that continues today. Where I agree with Chemi a whole lot is that, and I think that's a, a blessed trend that we should encourage and, and nurture, is that more and more we're driving the forces of innovation, in my mind, I would say to the right places. Uh, trying to tackle the biggest challenges, which honestly, I think I think we all agree on. I think if you ask 10 families in the world and ask them, what's on your top of your mind, you'll hear the same things over and over again. People will talk about health. They will talk about safety. And safety, by the way, is personal safety, but it's also the risks of, you know, uh, the changes we're all experiencing in our in our planet's climate and so on. Generally, I think it's an encouraging system it lets us have free enterprise. So it's really not a top-down besides one area, which is, which is defense. Now you ask who's going to judge or who's going to vote or who's going to provide or support the right solutions. But governments are actually elected every once in a while. When you are an enterprise, you are being elected every day by your customers, by your partners, by your investors. So you must be doing something right and you must have the tailwind in order to be successful in what you do, either by businesses or by customers. It's really the customers, it's the stakeholders, so to speak. And I think that there is today much more openness to collaborate on a global basis. For example, agreeing on the 17 Sustainable Development Goals and adopting it at countries level or enterprise level is something that is a global, uh, global collaboration, basically. But, but, but I think if I, if I may come back, come back to an earlier issue that I want to disagree with Chemi, and we're both Israelis. We have at least three opinions uh, around, around the table. Because I think, well, and, and, and by the way, just making sure that our listeners are aware, I did serve seven years in the government, but I served 25 years in the private sector. And I've been a tech executive and a venture capitalist. That, that's my DNA. And yet, I would claim that many times, the legendary two founders in a garage that you know, dream of an idea and why all of a sudden it becomes a unicorn, it, it doesn't work that way. You know, those, in order for those two founders to succeed, 
they need to work as part of an ecosystem. And it's not surprising that you know, Silicon Valley is probably the best example, right, of, of a well-functioning, effective uh, innovation ecosystem, even though they have their challenges as well, um, is a representation of that. And, and hence, you see that a biggest share of those success coming out of that region. So, so the importance of an ecosystem, I really think it's crucial in order for those innovators, those dreamers, those entrepreneurs to really fulfill their potential. If you want to achieve that, you have to go through a journey. It, you know, it took Israel 30 years to become an instant success. We're all excited about that, but it was a journey. And Chemi is young, of course, but I'm old enough to remember when we were not so good, in Hebrew I would say miserable, and doing business with the U.S., not to mention other markets. So it was an evolution, and we scaled up. And, and while scaling up, by the way, we had to keep our, our talent and capital, right, from going away to other innovation hubs like Silicon Valley. And I think, I think that's where the lessons lie. That, that, that's why I think Israel, I honestly think Israel is an interesting case because everybody wants to be Silicon Valley, but that's like almost impossible. But you can actually become Israel. And I think if you follow up, you know, if you, and you don't copy and paste, that doesn't work, unfortunately. But if you kind of follow the journey and, and try to learn and adapt, I actually think, you know, a lot of countries can go through that route. So, so let's talk about the ecosystem, a, a word perhaps overused around the world today, but, but in this case, I think an important descriptor. What makes up the Israeli ecosystem? Because one of the things Israel, as you already alluded to, does not have is a massive domestic market. And so in many ways, the ecosystem is not localized. And I think a lot of uh, countries and organizations who are thinking about tech and innovation hubs do believe that the ability to commercialize at scale locally is important. But you look at Israel and you say, well, is that really the case? And then what are all the other ingredients that have to be in, in the mix? So first of all, I think Avi touched a very important subject, which is eco ecosystem. Government needs to make sure that our ecosystem is strong because we are as strong as our ecosystems. And it goes all the way to education system, to funding, to regulation, to a lot of things that all together are creating the ecosystem and allows you really to build those enterprises. The ecosystem, in my view, needs to be able to do three basic things, three major things. Number one is to be able to identify new trends, new technologies upon the time they are born and not in delayed uh, way. Uh, I'll give you an example on the internet, uh, Web 1.0 mm -hmm. in Israel. It, it took us time to understand what Web uh, 1.0 is. It took us time to understand 2.0, social mm -hmm. networks. We are quick on the uh, 3.0. We are already there. So over time, we managed to close the gap of time, and that is crucial for ecosystems in order to be strong and successful. They need to be spot on and even ahead of the curve. The second thing, once you are spot on on new things, your ability to scale up is critical, and you can scale up based on the size and the power of your ecosystems. And in this case, we cannot match Silicon Valley that is local, global, and rich in one place, and you can implement things and you can do things on the ground before you scale on a global basis. In Israel, you have the ability, you have to have the ability to scale up very quickly out of a very small and tiny little ecosystem. The third thing is to address challenges that are not yours, but they are global. 
if you address your own markets or your own needs, you are doomed to fail. I'll give you the best case in my view of failure or missed opportunity. I think in France, they created the Minitel, which was the first online service. They used it in Paris for, uh, you know, uh, scheduling, uh, I don't know, trains or horoscopes on, or weather, but they didn't think globally. So they could have been the capital of internet, but they kept it as a local business. In Israel, there is no way you can keep a business local. So time, closing the time gap when new things arrive, being able to scale quickly and address, address global challenges will create the global interest that will allow you to continue and grow your ecosystem. So, so while there certainly have been lots of successes coming out of Israel, some critics might say, you know what, Israel is really good at technology. It's got things that come out of the defense industry that trickle over to the private sector. It has really smart people that can solve problems. It has capital that flows in, sometimes too much, sometimes too little, but it's available. However, the ability to wrap business models around the technologies hasn't been one of the greatest strengths. It's a lot more variable. Would you agree with that criticism or would you say, you know what, speed, we figure it out even if we fail the first few times we get, we get the one that actually works and becomes the great success. I would disagree, but I would say that it takes time to build some kind of a tradition. The ecosystem needs to have not only knowledge and people, etc. It needs to have lessons learned, tradition, processes that have evolved over time before you can reach the next step. I think in the first 10 years of the Israeli ecosystem, as I know it, we could barely approach markets. We could, we could definitely develop things for others. We were too late in the game in any way, and we could not scale up. So most of the startups ended up by being acquired by others. When we started to get the connectivity of the internet and the data flow and automation, and we started to be part of the global network, we stopped thinking as an island, and we started to think as creating category leaders. Money was available because there was a transformation from liquid assets to growth. We took advantage of that. But still, our mission statement was to build value through getting unicorns. Now we are in a new age that we understand it's not only about building valuation. You need to reach scale of business of billions of dollars in order to really create the category leaders. So I think that you will discover that Israelis are very good executives. They have strategies. They know how to run a business, not only develop, but it takes time. It takes time. Yeah, maybe just want to add two aspects to I agree with Chemi a whole lot. So a lot of the first generation entrepreneurs that Chemi talked about that sold their company to typically corporate America spent a few years working for those companies and actually gained firsthand experience and how does it look to run a complete or whole business, international, global in its reach, and so on? And when they came back, and they do come back in Israel, the number of serial entrepreneurs in this country is higher, or the percentage of serial entrepreneurs is higher than any other country. They aim higher. They're more experienced. They've gained that training, confidence, and know-how that enables them to build now a global business. That's point number one. And the second is just infrastructure. And again, Chemi mentioned that, but I want to stress that point. When marketing, marketing has changed. Marketing today is no longer 
about you know, taking a suitcase and traveling to your customers. And a lot of marketing is actually performance marketing, or I would say numbers. It's digital. And Israelis are actually quite good in numbers and algorithms. So, and you find some of the world best marketing companies, B2C, sort of, you know, the hardcore marketing companies, they come out of Israel. Uh, gaming companies, ad tech companies, again, as I said, multiple B2C companies, because all of a sudden, it's numbers that you need to master in order to drive you know, business value and not necessarily presentation skills or a big Rolodex or anything in which Israel does have you know, inherently a deficiency compared to other markets. You both have mentioned the importance of public-private partnerships, and you mentioned a few very large corporations. In the history of the Israeli innovation ecosystem, I think it's notable that there were quite a few large, particularly tech companies that came to Israel early on and started to really mesh themselves into the market. Do you think that had a major role? Absolutely. I think that one of the two engines, the main two engines of growth in Israel has been global enterprises coming to Israel. Originally, they came in for R&D purposes because the Israeli engineers were sitting on an island. They, they were loyal by, by nature. They had to be loyal. There's no way you can run and cheap and talented and thinking out of the box and complementing a lot of things. But over time, these companies that have emerged into the Israeli ecosystem started to see that Israeli engineers can do more than just R&D. They can actually develop products. They can actually create innovation, open innovation in, within companies. They can help them become more competitive. Some of them can be even executives, middle-class executives. Some of them got responsibilities. And what Avi said about the fact that some of the best B2C companies or marketing companies in Israel is very much substantiated by the fact, for example, that for the first time in our history, companies like Meta, Facebook, or Google started to see Israel as a market. We are too small. If you sell something for the consumer market, Israel cannot represent more than 0.5% of the market. But if you are selling uh, digital assets or digital services like marketing, then the Israeli companies that emerge here are becoming really significant customers. And the level of business of Google and Facebook and other companies in the Israeli ecosystem is becoming very significant. So the world is not just physical. The world is digital. When it comes to digital, we are becoming a very unique global center of a lot of activities. And I think Startup Nation Central did a, a research and they said that 95% of the companies or 90% 90, 90 of the global enterprises that came to Israel said that they've achieved what they've wanted, but even more, Israel has contributed to their competitiveness on a global basis, more than just getting the R&D services in Israel. Given the hyper-connectivity that you mentioned earlier, given the, the digitization of so many things, what's what, what have you both seen changing the most relative to perhaps at the beginning or the start of the Israeli innovation ecosystem to today? Culture. People are dreaming bigger. People are thinking long-term. People are interested in building businesses for the long run. They are becoming much more patient. They are becoming much more uh, interested in building their executive teams and global expansion 
educating and building the DNA of the company to scale, uh, gain dominancy in markets. And this has been changing in a dramatic way, in my view. This is the biggest change that I see as an investor is the kind of culture that the new generation of, of entrepreneurs are bringing. A lot of them are also bringing with, their, with themselves the idea of sustainability, the idea of impact on fulfilling values. It's a, it's a fantastic uh, development that we see in the market. I, I always love listening to Chemi because I think we agree on many things, but sometimes we look at the same phenomena with different lenses. <laughs> I think if you tell the Israeli story in general, it's always a blend of culture or you talked about the values and then capacities or infrastructure and so on. And I think we agree on the same thing, but we would probably give different weighted average to both things because going back to the culture, and I'll answer your question in a minute, Israelis had chutzpah and big vision also in the 50s and 60s, and yet we did not have an innovation ecosystem at the time. But if I need to look today, I see the same thing, and I agree with you on culture, but I think culture is just one piece of it. The other one, as I've said, is simply we have grown and learned as an ecosystem. You know, we've done, we've kind of mastered that first layer, the startup layer, and we continue. We still have a very strong startup engine. We'll talk about the challenges, uh, if of interest, but it's working. Great. What we've added to that in the past five years, I would say, even five years, definitely 10 years ago, uh, I was, I think I was still in venture, probably uh, maybe in government already, but it was hard for us to think about Forget unicorns, that's valuation. Think about tech companies that have revenues of $50 million or more. There were very few such companies. And today we have dozens, if not hundreds of such companies. It took time to do that journey and to add the missing components. So venture capital in Israel in the past 30 years. But all of a sudden, the names have changed. The big guys are coming to Israel for the first time. Why are they coming here? Because for the first time, they have the right deal flow to fuel their business. That's a new phenomenon. With all this inflow of professional venture capitalists, in addition to the, the Patangos that have been here from more or less the start, how has that changed valuations? How has that affected the way that entrepreneurs raise money? And has it created an artificial bubble that is supporting companies that may not have the greatest chance of scaling and becoming the next, you know, the next great corporation from, from Israel? Or, or is that part of the learning? Is that part of just the natural pace and course of how companies will succeed or fail, depending on whether they get rehired by their market every day? What Avi spoke about, which is the tradition, the time, the lessons learned, the, the experience that was gained, and the culture was part of an evolutionary process as a result of that. I think the same is happening with valuation fluctuations. I think we've learned to weather it because we've been there. We've been in the 2000 bubble burst. We've been to the 2007, 2008 global financial crunch. We've been through Corona. We're going now through the downturn. I think we learned how to weather the fact that markets are fluctuating uh, and, and valuations tend to go up and tend to go down. I can speak of Pitango, for example, that when things really got heated, overheated here, and there's been global competition on investing in Israeli companies in very high valuations, we did not try to compete. We did not believe in the sustainability of this. 
And we tried to play in an area that was safer in terms of absorbing the shock waves of valuations. And as a venture capitalist, when you have a portfolio and you make new investments, the market timing is always beneficiary to one point of your business and unfortunate to another one. If you are trying to exit a company at a time of depression, it's tough. But if you want to make new investments, it's a great time. So you have to, to, you have to understand that you have to take a clear look at what is the global trend, where the world is heading, and forget about the shockwaves of valuations, which are always tend to be either over-pessimistic or over-optimistic. And just be focused on the things that you do. And the change, for example, in today is the change from looking at valuations to looking at creating value. Be profitable and grow in a sustainable way and let valuations follow you, not pursue valuations. So let me again thank uh, both of you for joining us today. Thank you very much, uh, Eric. With your permission, I'd like to recommend the book and a, and a film. The film is on Netflix. It's called Never Stop Dreaming, The Life and Legacy of Shimon Peres, launched on July in 192 countries. It's an amazing film that tells the story of Israel through the life of my father. And the, the second one is a book, the last book he wrote before passing away, which is called No Room for Small Dreams. And it's also a book about Israel achieving things, changing realities, dreaming and realizing dreams with the conclusion that we always need to dream big and never stop dreaming. An incredible message. And thank you so, so much for joining us. Again, I just want to thank Avi Hassan for joining us today. Thank you so much for your time hosting us in your, in your facility, Startup Nation Central, and all of your incredible insights. Thank you, Eric. And uh, thank you, Chemi. It was a great discussion. Thanks for listening. You can find a transcript of this conversation at mckinsey.com slash committed innovator. We look forward to having you join us again soon for the next episode of The Committed Innovator.